Good morning. Let's go ahead and turn the lights up. I hear a lot of murmuring out there, and I'm curious if there's a lot of people who in the younger generations are like, what did he just wheel out? What is that thing? It looks space age, doesn't it? But do you remember when church seemed simple? When transparency sheets were what we used to get the words up on the screen? You remember that? We had minimal tech. I distinctly remember the old powered sound system that we had down in the old sanctuary. It was awful. It sounded bad. We used cheap Radio Shack mics because that's all that was available. And it was just bad, right? Now, those were the days though, right? Even though the tech wasn't great and it wasn't the highest quality sound, it was just like, man, this is church. This is what it's like. This is what it's about. Don't get me wrong. The tech that we've added here at FBC has added a lot to our ministry. We've been able to reach uh, beyond these walls. A lot of you here this morning started online, and I've heard that so often, and it's been great that we've been able to utilize the tech of high-def live streaming. You know, that's something we didn't have way back when transparency sheets and projectors were the big thing. Honestly, though, that old stuff, like I said, we had a ton of feedback. You couldn't hear the speaker sometimes. It would be feeding back a lot, or the words were blurry on the screen. I do remember Walt Edwardson would always do as the deer pants for the water, and the words on here were printed, and the bottom corner was a little clip art of a deer next to water. And that was the coolest thing back then, because we were like, dude, we have art on the screen with the words at the same time. There's just something about that feeling of simplicity. When, when things were simple, that calms us, and it reminds us of that ease of life. We, you know, back then, that was just so easy, right? But there's something about simplicity that does calm us, and it reminds us of the goodness of God. Because when we strip it all away, all of our possessions, needs, wants, desires, what we're left with is the awe-inspiring goodness of God. When we get rid of everything that we think is important, what we're left with is the goodness of God. So this morning, we're going to take the next half hour to talk about simplicity. And some of you are going to be upset. I am not going to do the notes entirely on the projector this morning. But the last two weeks, we've talked about silence and solitude, the need for us to find a place to be alone with God, to listen to his voice, to be silent. And then last week, we talked about Sabbath, that that God commanded Sabbath to us, but he also gave it to us as a gift. It's an opportunity to rest and to delight in him. And I'm curious, I asked you this last week, how did you do? For those of you that put it into practice, that did the 15 to 30 minutes every morning of silence and solitude or every day whenever you chose to do it, and those that added Sabbath, how did you do? Email me, let me know, john at familybible.church, j-o-n at familybible.church, or chris, k-r-i-s, at familybible.church. We want to hear your stories. We want to know how you are unhurrying, how this pace of life is changing when you focus on God and being in his presence. We've been talking about the practices of Jesus how these practices or his way inevitably lead us to this life, this life to the full that Jesus promises to us in John 10.10, where it says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life, and not only that, life to the full, to the full. See, Jesus' desire for us is to know this life to the full 
and yet we get so distracted by the things and practices of this world, those things that we think will make us full. And we lose that promise. We get life stolen away from us by the thief that we just read about in John 10.10. And one of the greatest weapons of the thief is hurry. To make us so busy, so fast-paced that we don't have time for God. That we forget what it is to live a simple life. Simply worshiping our Lord and Savior. Honestly, Jesus summed up how simple life is in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40. When he said this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Simply put, the life we are called to live is to love God and to love others. But man, do we overcomplicate it, right? We make it about so many different things. And and Jesus says, You've made it about so many different things, so I'm going to bring it all together for you. I'm going to simply take the law and the prophets, everything that you've known, and just say, love God and love others. You love God first, and out of the overflow of loving God, you're going to love others. But we get so caught up in all of these other things that we overcomplicate it, and we, we deem the stuff of the world, the patterns of the world, more important. We lose sight of what Jesus taught And some of the stuff that we're talking about this morning is just that, stuff. We have too much of it. Material possessions, things, we're surrounded by stuff. I mentioned this verse last week, but it sums up a lot of how Jesus felt about stuff in our lives. Matthew 6, 19 through 20, where he said, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, we're surrounded by this idea that if we have more stuff, it will lead us to more happiness. More pleasure equals more contentment. But Jesus is like, none of that matters. Your heart needs to be in the treasure of my presence and who I am. As Alan Fadling puts it, the drive to possess is an engine for hurry. We are in an engine for hurry because we are so driven, especially in the United States, to get more money, to be able to buy more things, to prove that we have made it, that we are successful. But when we look at the life of Jesus, we realize that was not his model for living at all. Jesus modeled simple living. In fact, Jesus breaks it down to two things in life in Matthew 6. Starting at verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And then he continues in verse 31. So do not worry saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He understands these are necessities. 
But if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all of those things, those necessities, will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus breaks the needs of life down to simply food and clothing. And even then, he says, don't even worry about those two things, because I got you. I've got it covered. And I know most of us right now are probably thinking, that's insane. That, that is not how life actually works. There's more than just food and clothing. There's shelter, there's work, there's blah, 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 fill in the blank. But even Jesus' followers, who were living a completely different life, got called into this simple life. And in 1 Timothy, say this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. See, Jesus is like, I don't want you to have all this stuff because it's a distraction. All you need is my presence, and I will provide you with everything. And his followers followed in that mindset, and they were provided for. But the problem is, is that we live in the American culture, and we find a lot of our identity in what we own. We find our identity in our possessions. And so we spend our time worrying about how we're going to afford that next thing to find our identity in. Think about it this way. Whether you're an iPhone person or an Android person, you find your identity in that if you like it or not. And I have been made fun of so much since I switched over to Android phone. When I text people, they're like, your bubble's a different color now. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Maybe you don't have one of those phones, but that's a thing. Like, there's a divide there. People find their identity in that. Also, if you're a Windows person, Wes, or a Mac person, John, I made the right decision, you find your identity in that, right? Whether you wear Old Navy or American Eagle, whether you drive a Ford or a Tesla, people find their identity in things. In fact, the fact that I just said Tesla made some of you like, Ugh. Tesla, because you find your identity in something else. I remember, I believe it was Grandpa Gurton that worked at the Ford factory, right? So the Gurtons bought Fords for a long time. And I remember hearing that we're a Ford family. We're going to buy Fords. We haven't done that in years, but that was, that was the pattern for a long time. You know, that pattern was, this is who we are as a family. But for you, you can fill in the blank on what that is, your possession that defines who you are. Stuff does define us. The problem is this is also known as idolatry. Our identity should only be found in God, but we often find our identity in the things that we serve, the things we so desperately need. If I don't have this thing, then I don't have an identity. See, it's in this pursuit of that stuff that's so important that we get caught in this cycle of hurry. But I want us to take a look at a story Jesus tells in the book of Luke in, in chapter 12. Someone comes to him, he's, he's teaching, and someone shouts out in the crowd and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now imagine being in this setting when Jesus is teaching people about love and everything, and then someone's like, Hey, Jesus, will you tell my brother I want my money? So Jesus, of course, responds and is like, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Essentially like, seriously? You're going to ask me that question right now? Does that really matter? Then he said to them this, watch out. 
Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Then he told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So he thought to himself, what am I going to do? I have no place to store all of my stuff, all of this, these crops. Then he said, oh, this is what I'll do. I'll just tear down my old barns and I'll build new ones, bigger ones, better ones. And that's where I'll store all of my stuff, all of my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you've done it. You've made it. You've got plenty of grain laid up for many years. So take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Who's going to get all of your stuff, all of your barns? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. There's a big stop sign, a big warning in this passage. He says, watch out. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I'm going to get your attention, guy who just asked for money. That's not what life is about. I want to get your attention, FBC. That is not what life is about. We live our lives trying to acquire things and prove that we have the ability to afford to possess to have all these bigger and better barns that we have to store them in. But when it comes down to it, this stuff that we own, all of these possessions, all of these barns filled with junk are going to end up in a garage sale or in an estate sale when our physical bodies leave this earth. That's the true yet harsh reality. You can't take it with you. No matter how hard you try, it will stay here. Yet we grind out our work days through sweat and tears and hurry and frustration in order that we might have more. Even the writer in Psalms recognized this in Psalm 39, verse 6. says, Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain, they're hurrying about, they're rushing about, heaping up wealth, getting everything they can, without even knowing whose it will finally be. He says, we're all rushing around, we're hurrying through this life, trying to show off that we're wealthy, that we can afford this stuff, but in the end, we don't even know where our stuff is going to end up. So if we don't put our hope in stuff, in possessions, in the worldly desires for more, what do we put our hope in? The psalmist continues in verse 7. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Not in all that stuff. It's in you. Our hope should not and cannot be placed in the things and fleeting pleasures of this world. We are guaranteed that they're going to fade away. Jesus says that in Matthew. They're going to rust. They're going to be eaten by moths. We see junkyards everywhere filled with things that no longer work, that no longer are uh, able to be used by us because they failed us. Not only that, but it's important for us to remember that the things we so desperately need and have to have will eventually come back to bite us. In two easy ways and much more ways than this, debt and time. So the first thing is debt. Did you know that the current credit card debt in America alone is $756 billion? Let that settle in. 
credit card debt alone, this is not debt, this is credit card debt alone, $756 billion in America, not the entire world, in America. We live in a culture where we want what we can't have, and so we spend what we don't have in order to acquire it. It's free money. They're just handing it out. And so I can buy whatever I want. But what that means is that inevitably you're going to have to pay that off. So that thing that you had to have is going to cause you to have to work more in order to pay that off, which leads us into time. We're now overworked and spent spiritually, physically, emotionally, and mentally because of this drive for more. We think more money will allow for us to have more time, but what we're forgetting is that it takes more time to make more money. That is how it works. We put in extra hours overtime, get that second job, drive an Uber, whatever it might be, in order to get more money so we can have more stuff or so we can pay off that debt of the stuff we already bought. But we also lose time maintaining those things that we bought. And that's something we often don't think about. Now, I already had one person say that I can't use this as an example because they bought a boat. Um, But the idea of buying a boat is a good idea because you get to use that with your family, have fun with that. I'm not saying you shouldn't buy a boat. Don't walk away from this message saying, he doesn't like boats, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm doing is an analogy, okay? So imagine that you buy a boat. I'm going to use this for the family. This is great. But then you have to think about maintaining that boat. So it takes time to maintain it. Then you have to think about a place to store that boat. Finding time to use the boat. Also buying a bigger, better truck to pull the boat. Also buying a trailer so that you can pull the boat. There's so many other things that when we buy something, we don't think through. We just think, this is going to be fun. Let's do this. But then we realize the impact it takes on our time. So don't buy a boat. That's not what I'm saying. It can be any plethora of things that you have that we just don't think through. John Mark Comer says, whether you're into motorcycles, sneakers, or Japanese anime, most of us simply have too much stuff to enjoy life at a healthy, unhurried pace. We simply do not have enough time to experience all of the stuff that we have. To put it in perspective, my kids are blessed with amazing aunts and uncles, grandparents, parents, We have bought them gifts. We've given them a lot of stuff for their birthdays, for Christmas, for Easter, whatever it may be. And they are overflowing with toys in their rooms. The other day we were going through stuff, cleaning it out. And I see my kids opening their toy box and emptying it out. And like, oh, I forgot about this toy. Oh, I didn't know I had this toy. Because they're so overwhelmed with all this stuff. And they don't have enough time in their day to play with all the toys. Well, guess what? It is the same for us as adults. We acquire all this stuff, and we think, well, I spent money on it, but I don't have time to use it, so I'll just stick it in the cupboard. I'll use it later. So it's no wonder that we spent the last two weeks talking about the need for silence and solitude and Sabbath, because we're surrounded by stuff that we spent money on, and so we're obsessively thinking, I spent a lot of money on that. I need to use my time for that, because that's important. I didn't spend money on Jesus so he can wait. But I want to remind us again, stuff in itself is not bad. It's okay to have stuff. 
But if we find our identity in that stuff, it's become a master to us. It's become an idol. And we're going to read later that you can't serve two masters. So John Mark Comer poses these questions. What if the formula more stuff equals more happiness is bad math? What if more stuff often just equals more stress? More hours at the office, more debt, more years working a job I don't feel called to, more time wasted cleaning and maintaining and fixing and playing with and organizing and reorganizing and updating all the junk I don't even need. What if more stuff actually equals less of what matters most? Less time, less financial freedom, less generosity, which according to Jesus is where the real joy is. Less peace as I hurry my way through the mall parking lot, which he's going to have to update that in a few years. Less focus on what life is actually about. Less mental real estate for creativity, less relationships, less margin, less prayer, less of what I actually ache for. What if I were to reject my culture's messaging as a half-truth at best, if not a full-on lie, and live into another message, another gospel? So with all that being said, that leads us to the inevitable question of how. First and foremost, let's take a look at the Word of God. Before we do that, though, I'm going to say there's a word in here. It's going to say, command those who are rich. And so you might be reading this thinking, I'm off the hook. Well, according to an article in 2012, it says that if you make $25,000 a year or more, you are in the top 10% of the world's wealth. 25000 If you make $34,000 a year or more, you are in the top 1% of the world's wealth. So as you read this, know that God is speaking to all of us. So it says this in verse 17 of chapter 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. That sounds like the psalm we were reading earlier. Who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Echoing John 10.10. Before we move on from this, I, I do want to point out, being rich is not a sin. It's okay if you've done that in a godly way. Being successful is not a bad thing. It's when we find our identity and it becomes an obsession that we need to have wealth and find all of this in those things and it takes us away from following God that it becomes a problem. Timothy says this in verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. All right, so let's get into the practice of simplicity. What is it? Well, Ellery was up here earlier talking about architecture. It's not minimalism. It's not an idea of architecture. It's not a place where you walk into and there's nothing there but one chair. That's what minimalism is, okay? It's also not poverty. It's not saying I'm not going to have anything. It's saying I'm going to have less. I don't need this much. It's also not about organizing your stuff. It's not a Marie Kondo type thing. Is that her name? Did I say it right? Okay, thank you. So it's not that type of an idea because the reality is if you need to be organizing and reorganizing your stuff, you've got too much stuff. Joshua Becker defines it this way. It's the intentional promotion of the things we most value 
and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. Promoting what we most value and getting rid of the things that distract us from that. So as Christians, what do we most value? Well, Jesus, like I said, he boiled it down to love God and love others. So then the next question is, what's distracting us from that, from living that out? Have I made stuff or this pursuit of stuff something I'm serving? Do I find my identity in it, in that thing, instead of in God? Now, as I was going through a list of things that John Mark Homer listed in the book, there was very practical things. I had this all listed out in my sermon, and I decided last night to get rid of it all. So if you want practical steps, sorry, you can go to the book. Pages 205 to 213, write it down in the book, are where you can find practical steps. But ultimately, what it comes down to are some simple questions. Do I need this? Do I need that thing that bad? Also, if you've got stuff, when's the last time I used it? How many pairs of shoes, jeans, shirts, makeup brushes, whatever it may be, fill in the blank, do I really need? And then this question is the question that I felt the Spirit moving on me, why I changed the second half of my sermon last night. Does this cause me to love God and to love others? Or in other words, does this thing cause me to praise God and realize his glory, his goodness, And does it allow me to show love to those around me? It's as simple and as hard as that. Now comes confession time. I love gadgets. I do. I like tools. I like entertainment. As I ran through the sermon, I couldn't help but feel a twinge of guilt as I looked at my smartwatch to see what time it was. Ooh, that was a a kick right there. I couldn't help but feel a strange conviction when Angela and I were cleaning out some of our spaces trying to simplify. We've been journeying through simplifying for a year and a half now. And yesterday, or the day before, we had Sabbath yesterday. So Friday, we were working on that. And I came across a drawer filled with electronics that are perfectly good. We just don't use because I upgraded to something newer and better. See, I like stuff. And I would say there was a time where I was obsessed with stuff. I wanted stuff. It's fun. Again, stuff isn't bad, but finding my identity in that stuff shifts from having things to serving things. So I confess to you, I'm a work in progress. This book that we've been going through, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, they're all things that I know I should be doing, and I was choosing not to because I didn't want to work on that. I didn't want to waste my time being silent and in solitude. I didn't want to set aside a whole day for Sabbath. I didn't want to simplify Life is so much better this way. But since I've been doing those things, I have found myself more patient with my family, more in tune with God, more intentional with my kids. But as I thought through through this message over the weekend, I just had this heaviness. I kept thinking about the simplicity of what Jesus called us to, to love God and to love others. And I started to feel this frustration, frustrated with the fact that we've overcomplicated this simple guideline. I've, I've brought the whole law, all the prophets together in this, love God, love others. But we're so overwhelmed for this need for more, something different. So I ask you this morning, have we as a people of God lost sight of the simplicity of the gospel? 
If Jesus can say that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets and sum it all up by saying, love God and love others, are we living that way? Or are we getting buried beneath stuff? Are we letting things like politics, masks, lifestyles, material possessions, status, skin color, whatever it might be for you, are we allowing that to distort what it means to love God and to love others? We don't have to agree with what everybody says. As Chris said to me this morning, the hard part is is that the world has defined love as accepting everything. If you love me, then you accept everything I've ever done. You accept me as I am. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus extended love, and then he says, I want you to be so much better. Jesus was an Israelite, and yet he was able to show love to a Samaritan woman. Those two cultures hated each other. And Jesus went out of his way to be with someone that they disagreed with, to tell her, I love you, and then also to point out, hey, you've been doing some stuff that you're not supposed to. Maybe you should work on that. Jesus also was hanging on the cross next to awful people, and he looked over to the guy who was like, I believe you're Jesus, and he said, I love you. I forgive you. I don't know the last time you were hanging on a cross next to someone who was a murderer. Jesus also loved the unlovable. He touched the untouchable. What does it mean to love God and to love others? To live out that example? Can we just simply do what Jesus asked us to? Have we chosen to love ourselves over loving people? And have we chosen loving stuff over loving God? Now, I know that took a weird turn. But I have been struggling with that. Because... The simplicity of the gospel is is there for us to take and to run with and to live out, and we choose not to. And it ties in with this passage. We bookended Matthew chapter 6 with two different passages. And in the middle of that, he says this weird thing. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And then he goes on. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So this passage kind of seems quizzical because we just talked about you don't need a lot. You just need food. You need clothing. Don't even worry about that. And then all of a sudden he's talking about eyes. But the thing is, is in the Jewish culture, this idea of eyes have a, has a deeper meaning. Because a healthy eye, as it says here, means that you're living life with intentionality. If you have money, if you don't have money, you are keeping your eyes fixed on those around you and looking out, does this person need help? Do I need to be loving on this person? That is a healthy eye. An unhealthy eye is the opposite where you're distracted by the things of this world. Do I need to buy that iPhone 12? Do I need to have this in order to make myself happy? I'm focused inward, and I'm focused on possessions. I'm not focused on loving others. So as we wrap up, I want to challenge you by asking a simple question. What are my eyes fixed on? See, we all have what we need in the provision of God. He guarantees it in Scripture. We can rest in that assurance. Jesus did. He didn't worry about the need for food or clothing on his back. He knew God would provide for him. And Jesus' followers knew this as well. They lived it out. So are my eyes fixed on him 
or all that begs for my attention that the thief has to offer. Jesus is saying, I have life for you and life to the full. Fix your eyes on me. Don't pay attention to what the thief is trying to give you. After all, as the great philosopher Bilbo Baggins once said, it's no bad thing to celebrate a simple life. In fact, Paul kind of said the same thing in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. He said, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, but I also know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That last passage is a passage we take out of context a lot. Because what it's really saying is, I don't need all of this stuff. I've learned what it is to be content. And because of my contentment in God, I now have the strength to do these things for him. Because I'm dependent on him. We can be content in God's provision and not pursue this false contentment that this thief is trying to throw at us. So this morning, as we shift into communion, we realize that Jesus did live a simple life dependent on God. And the result of this changed history forever. As he ultimately endured the shame and disgrace of the cross to take away our shame and to offer us grace. We've all made mistakes. We've chosen to overcomplicate our lives and the gospel with stuff. We've chosen to pursue the love of money, which has led us down the wrong road. We've chosen to consume stuff, which has limited our time and our contentment with the creator. But Jesus, he gave up his body. He gave up everything he had for us to cover that sin. We don't need to live that life anymore. The old is gone. The new has come. So let's take communion together in celebration in our hearts, knowing that we can simply worship him. We can strip it all away and still worship our loving creator. As I said, as we started this message, there's something about simplicity that calms us and reminds us of the goodness of God. So I encourage you as Chris comes up for communion to simply rest in him, to be calm in him, and to know his goodness. The Lord's Supper is a remembrance. You think of what Jesus did in remembrance. He said, this bread, this simple item of bread, it's my body. This cup, it's my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And here we are, 2,000 years later, remembering Jesus, remembering his sacrifice. As Paul gives instructions in 1 Corinthians, he calls us to examine ourselves before we receive to examine ourselves. And really what John is communicating today through the word and through this message is this examination of our heart. And so would you take a moment to examine your heart, to confess anything that you need to confess to be right before the Lord. So would you take a moment to examine and John and Angela are gonna sing a song. You can listen to the words as well.
If I have you and nothing else, of everything, of Jesus. The word records on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take this in gratitude. same way after supper, Jesus, he took the cup, so with gratitude, said this cup this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So as we drink, remember the sacrifice of Jesus. The word continues in the same way. I'm sorry. The word continues, for whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we proclaim the Lord's death in this supper of the Lord. 
but also we proclaim life. That's the gratitude. That is the, the worship that comes from this. And so I invite you to join me in prayer. Jesus, may we be a people who walk in gratitude in life and with our eyes focused on you. Lord, we're so distracted so many times. God, forgive us of that. God, may we know your heart. May we move towards your heart this week. Lord, may your spirit speak to us in a mighty way of, Lord, what you desire for us, who you desire for us to be. Lord, the simplification just of the complexities that we build around us, God, may we surrender wholeheartedly to you. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you care, God, about how we live. You care about our life. God, you desire this relationship with us. Lord, I pray for anyone right now, God, who's here, who has never begun a relationship with you, who's never confessed their sin, that in this moment that they would take this time or to pray a prayer like this to receive your forgiveness and, and salvation. God, I'm a sinner. I've done wrong. I've tried to live on my own. But Lord, in this moment, I confess my sin to you. And Lord, I believe that you're taking my sin you took my sin on the cross. And Lord, you're forgiving me and you've forgiven me. And Lord, today I desire to, to walk in relationship with you, to be a follower of Jesus, to learn your ways, to follow you as one of your disciples. So Lord, today I say yes to you. And I thank you for the forgiveness of my sin. And for each one of us here who know Jesus and follow Jesus, that this would be a, another moment of connection with you, a catalyst to spur us on to the week that you call us into, the, the interactions, to the relationships, to the opportunities. God, direct us with wisdom in Christ-like words and actions. Lord, help us. And so together we pray these things in Jesus' strong and powerful name. Amen.